This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hall and Wilcox's Cyber Podcast, CyberZone. I'm Eden Winnicker, a partner and head of cyber at Hall and Wilcox. For season one, episode three, I'm thrilled to be joined by Reese Ryan a leading crisis communications expert and the CEO of Porta Novelli Australia. Today, we're talking about crisis communications in cyber incidents, how to get them right. Reese, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me, Eden. Great to be with you. Excellent. So, you know, you're one of the leading cyber crisis communications experts in Australia. Looking at it sort of quite broadly at a high level, how do you think the likes of Optus uh, and, and Medibank have handled their crisis communications to date? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we can only sort of look at it from the point of view of everybody else, you know, what we've read in the paper, what we hear, hear around the traps. And to be honest, while there's been obvious issues with the way that they've handled it, actually, you know, knowing what I know, knowing what you know, they probably haven't done as poorly as some people think. It's just that you have to understand that when you're a household name as a, as a business, when your business suffers this sort of incident or crisis, it's fantastic fodder for news organisations. So headlines with Optus and Medibank in them get clicks. And so this has been incredibly salacious for, for the news media. And the problem is you then have hundreds of very well-informed journalists wading into a, a situation. Unfortunately, while they're well-informed about many things, many of them are not well-informed about the, the ins and outs of a data breach situation. And so you get a lot of uninformed commentary. And then in this case, you, you're getting political stakeholders under pressure to make comment who some of whom have, uh, you know, varying levels of, of knowledge about what's going on. So the nightmare scenario for any business and the, the incidents where we find the most difficulty in getting aligned with our clients on is when the public or the stakeholders around you become aware of a data breach when you don't know the full extent of it and you might not know for days or weeks. In some cases, you may never know the full extent of it, but you're being, everyone's screaming at you and demanding definitive answers. And I think that's probably where they made some significant missteps in their response. Perhaps they didn't have the right expertise on board in the early hours of the incident, but giving definitive statements when you are still in the early stages of a forensic investigation, I think that's what really might have tripped them up in, in, in this case, because then you you appear to be changing your story when in fact you're actually just updating the situation. But yeah, I think as household names and public, publicly listed companies, working in healthcare, you're, it's an incredibly high stakes situation. There's so many conflicting pressures on the business and so little time. I'm sure there's a lot happened that we're not aware of. So have some sympathy for them. Yeah, it's, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's why, you know, when we talk to clients about incident response, one of the first things uh, that we always recommend is to, to call us straight away. So that, you know, you know <laughs> yeah. really, you know, that, that means that if, if we, you know, if we were to receive a call from the likes of an Optus, if we had received that call once they were aware of it, one of the first things I would have recommended is to call you and bring you mm. in, Reese, to, 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 to bring in your expertise to help manage that communications channel. And yeah, obviously we don't know uh, exactly what happened behind closed doors, but, but something's happened which has resulted in certain statements being made, which I think with the benefit of hindsight appear to be unfortunate. And that yeah. that really leads me into, it's a great segue into my next question, which is, you know, if you look at the Optus breach, the CEO um, very quickly said that it was a sophisticated attack. 
uh, and that that word sophisticated has been jumped on by the media who have rounded up a, a series of experts who have refuted that statement and that position's sort of consistent with my discussions with cybersecurity experts and 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 then the minister for cybersecurity she jumped on that comment as well and uh, just flat out said it was wrong and so you know I think Optus have have had people scoring runs oftenly throughout the process by calling it sophisticated and then in the Medibank breach its CEO said on the 17th of October and we're recording this on Friday 28 October, but on the 17th of October, the CEO said that 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 we can say, and then they use the word definitively, that there's no mm. evidence that customer data has been removed from our systems, only to nine days after that statement uh, come out and say that all 4 million customers have had their data exposed in the incident. So w- why did these CEOs get it so wrong? And how does making these types of statements impact the organization's reputation? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, the level of reputation loss has a massive business impact. You know, Medibank's share price dropped about 20%. They've wiped about $2 billion of, uh, you know, shareholders value off its market cap. And so the market there is essentially pricing in the likely loss of trade the company will see in months, coming months and years. I mean, uh, would you join Medibank tomorrow? You might think twice after seeing all the news. I mean, it's probably, it has a massive business impact and and in a way compared to some of the high profile breaches we've worked on that's getting off lightly it, you know sometimes it can be existential for a business altogether because the, the impact is there's loss of trust you know you're handling something so important on behalf of your customers stakeholders consumers and and medical records are you know the highest of the high you're, you're holding their baby essentially there's a there's a loss of perception of competence that comes with this sort of thing and the realization that we're handing over a lot of data to these companies and not really getting much in return for that which leaves a bit of a bad taste in our mouth so the, the impact is really um, quite powerful and you're seeing that more and more people coming out in the media saying hang on why are we giving all of our data to these companies what are we getting back from it and that's been a long-term conversation as the kind of convenience for data kind of uh you know trade has continued but i think i think from my point of view ceos get it wrong or you know business leaders get it wrong usually for two reasons um and, and the first is probably because they're wading into a data breach with very little experience or preparation for it, even though I'm sure these companies do, you know, simulations and have plans, et cetera. But, you know, they're, they're motivated sometimes by issues other than reputation. Maybe they're receiving advice from, from, from legal professionals or other non-specialists who might be, you know, prioritising other issues above the transparency they need. But I think they just got it wrong in their messaging. To your point, they, they tried to get out there quickly, but they were far too definitive in their statements. And you're dealing with media and stakeholders who are, who are a bit unsophisticated in these matters and don't really understand how complicated it can be to unpick a data breach that's been carefully, you know, the tracks have been carefully covered by a threat actor. So you, my, my sort of thinking on it is you just never say a single sentence that doesn't include the message, but it's important to stress that our investigation is ongoing. Or right now we don't see any evidence, but our investigation is ongoing. Like it should be never, you know, you should never be saying a single sentence that can be taken out of context and just dropped into a media article and having said that i think companies try to do the right thing and continually update the market update stakeholders and then they're taken out of context and accused of changing their story so i think if you're going to be transparent about it that's good but i think you've got to be extremely careful about the actual language you use and then finally i think i think they underplayed the criminal nature of these attacks i think if somebody broke into a a secure Optus data center and blew up the safe and stole your data, you'd be upset, but you you wouldn't feel that badly towards Optus. And I think while you can't pretend you're the victim here, you can 
position yourself somewhat as the co-victim of a serious crime alongside your customers. It's not, you know, Optus and Medibank didn't do this to their customers. It was done to them. And I think, you know, in that case, it was actually really helpful when the cybersecurity minister, Claire O'Neill, called the Medibank hackers criminals and called the attack a dog act. You know, I think that was actually quite helpful for them because, you know, it does help to position them as the victim of a crime. Um, and as I said, I think there's a real limit to how much you can play victim when you've lost people's data. But at the end of the day, it was stolen from you. You didn't just, you know, drop it out of your pocket. I think you make a, a number of really great points there and, and, and a number of sort of interesting points that, that I wanted to sort of comment on. I mean, one, that sort of in, the investigation is ongoing. In, in fairness to the Medibank CEO, that was the language that was used in some of the earlier mm. communications. It was just the, the word definitively, you know, this shows just how, I mean, you got lawyers and communications experts talking about the importance of words. So that's not a huge surprise, but, you know, like just a single word, like significant, sorry, uh, sophisticated or definitively, these words are so important mm. when it comes to the way that we communicate with stakeholders in response to cyber incidents. And, you know, we're talking about high pressure situations here, but nevertheless, um, you know, that's why it is so important to have the right people on board who can give you the right perspective on on, on how certain words will be perceived and how they can come back to bite yeah, at certain points. Yeah, and it's, 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 it sounds like, you know, lawyers and comms people quibbling, but you're, when you say something like, did when did you know? It's really important to be able to define what you mean by no. If you know that something's been accessed, but you don't know what's been taken, and you and, and it's in the in the range of millions of records, then you you could get in real trouble if you go out there and and be very definitive about it. So, it is really difficult to to sort of determine what you know when you knew it, um, and and then to be able to communicate that and make sure that what you're communicating is accurate. So I think it is using the right words is much more important than it. It is in any other situation. And I think a couple other points that you, you mentioned that I wanted to touch on. One is sort of, you know, we're talking about the, the way that companies collect our data and it's a really hot topic. I mean, there's been just this week, um, the Attorney General has put forward some proposed amendments to the Privacy Act and this amendment seeks to uh, you know, massively increase the uh, maximum penalty that the uh, privacy commissioner can seek to impose against companies to $50 million or three times the benefit derived. And there's even uh, potentially a 30% of an adjusted turnover measure, um, which is an enormous uh, amount that companies can be penalized. And so there is, I think, going to be a real reckoning when it comes to the way that companies look at what data they look at, the sort of life cycle of data and i mean there was that saying a few years ago sort of data is the new oil and then you know <laughs> the, the, and, and then you had alistair mcgibbon who's a, a a very well known and respected um person in the sort of cybersecurity space compare data to asbestos and I, I don't necessarily agree with that characterization i don't i wouldn't call it asbestos but i do think that companies really do need to have a long think about the way that that, that their data life cycle plays out from the moment they're collecting to the moment they delete or de-identify it in order to comply with the Privacy Act. I think there's a lot of work to be done in that space. Uh, and you also mentioned yeah. simulations. I, I, my, my observation is that not enough companies have run simulations properly or really game planned for these types of scenarios. I mean, I, I'm encouraging all companies around Australia to undertake that type of training, bringing in people like myself and, and, and the team at Hall & Wilcox bringing in IT experts, bringing in comms experts like yourself, 
recently the team at Porto Novelli to actually sit down and spend half a day a day with the leadership team to go through you know how how would your company respond to this type of incident and make sure that they've got the correct playbook in place so that in those first hours after an incident happens they're not saying the wrong thing that's going to lead to people jumping on and attacking them or share prices dropping the way that we've seen. So I couldn't agree more. I actually spent about six hours in a um, data breach simulation session yesterday with a, a large Australian manufacturing company. And it was designed to test their crisis response, their business continuity plan, their data breach response plan. And it was really good because we found a lot of problems. You know, you can't just have a crisis plan. You need a specific plan for response to cyber incidents because if you have to unplug your system, create an air gap essentially, and you've had a ransomware attack, take down your Active Directory, you can't even call each other. So, you know, you go, oh, we'll just start a, we'll get a Teams meeting going with the crisis response meeting, uh, you know, crisis response team. And the next question is, well, how do we tell people to come to a meeting? We can't email them. We can't call them, you know. And so, and then someone starts talking about WhatsApp and never the legal people in the room are saying ah i'm not sure we should be doing so it is you know it's a really valuable exercise right down to brass tacks and for this company you know we shut down all the manufacturing all the logistics storage refrigeration you know they can't guarantee food safety etc so it, it when you get locked up it really does lock you up and having contingencies in place um is that's what really is stands between you having a catastrophic response to a data breach and a, and a decent response to a data breach, having workarounds, because everyone's going to start asking you questions really quickly. And if you can't even make a phone call, you're just not going to be able to respond properly. And that's the whole point of these simulations. It's not to, you know, focus on what hasn't been put in place previously. It's really about being ready and prepared to handle the, the risks that are currently faced. So really pleased to hear that, that that the client you worked with has undertaken that training. And, you know, again, I sort of would strongly encourage more and more companies to, to undertake this training and look at it sort of holistically, look at it as you know, there's three pillars here. There's the legal issues, there's the IT issues, and there's the communications issues. They're really your core three issues when it comes to response. So in my view, the best way to do that is to integrate those three together and then work through these types of simulations. Yeah. I wanted to move on to another question, which um, is really around timing. So I think um, Optus was criticised, I saw by a number of journalists, for taking literally one day to communicate with the public after it became aware of the incident. I mean, I saw TV, radio, you name it, people were jumping down their throats for literally waiting one day. But as we both know very well, in practice, it's often difficult to communicate immediately after becoming aware of a suspected incident or even when you know that you've had one because there are a lot of unknown facts and investigations mm -hmm. are underway. You know, how challenging is it for you from a communications perspective to balance being quick to inform customers about an incident and then making sure that what customers are told is accurate and isn't going to cause them too much concern? You know, how, how do you generally deal with this kind of tension? Yeah, and as I said, that's when we're often we're called in. So when you have a breach, you know that you generally always have your forensic and IT folks on it, and then legal advice, etc. But when we get called in, it's usually because there is that awful trough of uncertainty when you've discovered there's been some form of breach, and you, and when you can actually accurately notify affected individuals, that time can be weeks or months. You know, we have a breach that 
we was detected last November for a client, they're still rolling out communications because they keep finding more evidence of access files. Um, and and it's a it's a massive job. So I think the the tricky part is you, you've also got to balance communications with stakeholders and what you're required to do under the act um, to, to, to notify notify those people who are affected. And then you've also got obviously tensions when a threat actor makes it public or in some other for some other reason it's ob it's obvious to everyone that you've had a cyber incident at the same time it becomes obvious to you particularly if you're a publicly traded company so you know i, I saw in a media story this week that uh, richard uh, rachel fork the ceo of the Cybersecurity cooperative research center said that you know uh, the, the medlab breach that just came out the other day that they they should have gone public immediately you know they, they obviously held on to some news for quite a long time in a number of months i think but she said, you know, quote, my view is as soon as you know you have a breach and you fall under the Privacy Act, even if you're not sure, disclose, disclose, disclose. That's the sort of expectation we're seeing now. But the problem is that if you know you have a breach and you fall under the Privacy Act, yeah, you don't know though, because you you know maybe some individuals are affected, but you don't know how many. And you, if you're a, a publicly traded company like Medibank, you can't just go out there sort of having a guess at it. And you might know you've lost data and you, you've, you've verified with a threat actor that they really have exfiltrated data. But you don't know exactly what data and and you know we had one a while back where hundreds of thousands of records have been stolen but in the end when we finally got to the end of it only 23 people had actually suffered a notifiable breach the rest was all just things like names and addresses that can, you can get in the white pages so i think that um you know media won't necessarily be responsible with that information if you go out and say we look we've lost millions of records but we're we're pretty sure it's only a few people have been affected so in terms of like what we do to to deal with that tension where there's a gap between what we know and when we know it is the best advice i can give is to flood the zone um you know you've got to update constantly update the regular media update your website update your socials and having with extreme discipline about what you say so investigations ongoing we will continue to update every two hours we've updated you know the relevant regulatory authorities We've contacted law enforcement. We're working with forensic experts. Basically, the, the more information you can put out there, the better, because it means that you're not asking media or other stakeholders to fill the, the vacuum with what they might imagine to be the case or other pundits. So that, that's, our, that's our goal is making sure you've got inf as much information as you can out there all the time. And then the last thing I'd say is you've got to be prepared for the inbound. Once you do that, if you, if you go out before you know exactly what the truth is, you're going to get you might get thousands of calls an hour. So one of the things we recommend to large companies is that they should have a call center partner ready to roll that, that can be briefed and stood up in a couple of hours um, so that when you get thousands of inbound, it can be diverted to a third party that can handle those and give people basic information. Couldn't agree more. I mean, two, two points that come out of that for me, you know, you made the point about sort of, we're talking about what's notifiable under the Privacy Act. I think, you know, it's helpful to stop and, and, and clarify that. It's it's not every data breach means that you need to notify whether it's the Privacy Commission or the individual um, under the Privacy The current law in Australia is that not every data breach is actually notifiable. 
it's not a legal obligation to notify about everything. So, uh, and you, you sort of referred to the white pages before, and I think for, for the listeners, it's sort of helpful to, to take note of that. If your name and email address is caught up in a data breach, depending on the circumstances, there's a chance that the impacted company doesn't need to tell you. You know, for me personally, my name and email address is on the firm's website. So if anyone wants it, please feel free to go and look it up. But if there's a data breach and it involves my name and my email address, the company probably doesn't need to tell me that um, because anyone can get that from Mm. publicly available information. So it's really when we start getting into more sensitive data, health records, you know, driver's licenses, passports, that it is important to tell me so I can go and take steps to protect Mm. myself. So I think one of the challenges that that I've seen and observed in in my time working in this in this space is that, and I think you alluded to it before, it's you know a company might know that they've had a breach. Uh, you know, I, I had one where we, we had millions of records that had been impacted, but the vast majority of records impacted were you know just again sort of basic name and addresses. But you don't know that on day one. It can take mm. weeks to figure that out. So you come out publicly and say we've had this incident. You get the flood of inbound calls wanting to know, you know, what's happened and what of my information have you got? That information is not necessarily readily available and at the fingertips of someone to be able to give that to you straight away. And so, it's a real challenge that 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 I've often seen companies grapple with. And and, and I agree with you that sometimes you do need to engage with external call center services to. Um, take the pressure off the, the the team who ultimately will be receiving these inbound calls because it, it can be a very high pressure situation and can lead to a lot of fatigue for companies, particularly on the big ones. Yeah, and I think that part of that is stems from the fact that when people think about a, a threat actor taking information, they kind of think that you, they're going in and selecting an Excel spreadsheet full of contact details, when in actual fact, it's more like a RAM raid. You just come in and grab every, you know, grab a huge amount of data and just, you know, exfiltrate that off the system. And it, it's a whole mix of things. And so trying to, it's all fragmented. There's bits of this, bits of that. Um, it can take hundreds of people many, many days, weeks, months to go through it line by line and actually ascertain what's notifiable. And I think that's where the expectation clunk comes with the average punter out there. And fair enough, they they would expect it all to be a bit more organised than that, but it's an absolute mess. And um, that's what's very hard to communicate. It really is. I mean, there's a, there is this real perception. If you go to sort of the down to the pub, there's probably an expectation that everyone's data is neat and structured and really easy to figure out, you know, oh, you know why can't we just sort of figure out like in the click of a finger, how, how, you know, what data is impacted and how many, how many Medicare cards have been impacted. It's just not that simple. Um, just use AI, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe, maybe, maybe in the near future, we'll be uh, a lot smarter at how we deal with this. And uh, I do think, you know, sort of, we joke about it, but I do think that we will get there. It's a matter of time. Um, so I wanted to ask a, an, another question, which came up in the Optus breach. A, a number of customers were, pretty frustrated about finding out about the incident in the media. And I know we've we've actually talked about this before when, when we've worked on matters before. And um, it's really about sort of the order in which stakeholders should be notified or should be advised about what's happening. And so, you know, appreciate that not all, not all matters are the same. You, you can't really have a rule that applies every single time, but, but just generally, what do you recommend in terms of the order of how you communicate with key stakeholders? Yeah, it's interesting because the people who are upset about finding out about the breach in the media, they found out that there had been a breach. They didn't find out that their details had been necessarily taken. You know, like, so it was sort of an interesting one. Sometimes um, 
that yeah, the expectation's sky high at the moment, and that will remain so for probably a number of months. I'd say our general rule of thumb is if you do the right thing as a human by other humans, um, the media will will treat you reasonably well. So our general order of things is you've got to tell your staff of what's going on so that if they are asked, they can actually answer credibly, relevant staff members. Then you've got to tell stakeholders. So, you know, you've got to update regulatory authorities and law enforcement or whoever else it might be. Um, you may have contractual obligations to tell customers, B2B customers, and all those things probably need to happen before you go and tell media and, and, and consumers that you've had a breach. Um, in a perfect world, it would be you know in that order and and notify and affected individuals before before media. But when it's sort of sometimes these things all land at once. But I think generally we, we would say tell your people, tell your stakeholders, tell affected individuals, and then tell media. Um, but if you do all those first three right, you don't really need to communicate with media because everyone else will <laughs> on your behalf. Yeah, but I think that's a that's a general rule. Um, I always, you know, we, we work with media all the time, but I'm always telling our clients in a range of different scenarios, let's focus on doing the right thing. And as Joe Biden's so fond of saying, let's get caught trying. Let's get caught doing the right, right thing rather than trying to worry about reputation first, papering things over, papering over things, just focus on doing the right thing. And then you don't have to worry about saying the right thing. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. And I know, I know another one that um, that I, I always sort of mention because sometimes it's forgotten is, is just employees, just making sure that employees are currently informed and, you know, they, they are often the mouthpiece for your company. So making sure that they've got a sort of single source of truth, whether it's sort of a statement page that, that, that covers all the details so that, you know, we're all people. So when, when they go home from work, people, they've got friends, they've got family, they'll know that, that you work at, Optus, let's just say, you know, it's important yep. that they've got a, a single message that they can then um, communicate out to the world as someone from the inside. Especially these large companies, like everybody knows someone who works at Telstra. Everyone knows someone who works at Qantas or Jetstar. Like, so you, you just going to text your mate and say, hey, what's the deal? And if, if they've got the right answer, instead of having to rely on, say, one media outlet, you've got tens of thousands of, of narrow, narrow cast <laughs> um media outlets at your disposal and if you communicate with them respectfully and and give them the right info then it can be really powerful absolutely so the final question is is going to focus on um sort of pre-incident and so uh you know really what we've been talking about so far is how to respond to an incident coming in for a crisis we Mm. did do a little bit of talk about sort of simulations and training uh, but i want to focus more in on that sort of pre-incident stage you know what do you recommend? What are some of the recommendations that you make to companies throughout Australia from a communications perspective to help them be prepared in case they have a cyber incident? Yeah, so I remember I was speaking at an um, event on a panel a couple of years ago about this and there was a, a forensic professional there and he said, you know, they always say an ounce of prevention um, beats a pound of cure. And he said, well, I'm the pound of cure and we don't walk in the door for less than a quarter of a million dollars. And I just thought, you know, what people don't really understand is how expensive it can get if you're not prepared and you don't have the right things in place. So from my point of view, I'd say every company should be exploring their options when it comes to insurance, cyber incident response. As I said earlier, um, when we in our conversation, you should have a specific data breach um, response plan alongside your crisis management plan. And you you should have um, regular simulations to test that plan because 
you test it this year, by in 12 months time, there'll be changes to your exec team and your board. So you've got to keep updating that, making sure people are, are ready to go and understand their, their responsibilities. So I'd say, yeah, insurance plan and simulation. And then the, uh, the fourth thing I'd say is um, you should have relationships in place with specialists. So a legal specialist firm, not just a, not just your external counsel, but a firm that actually understands the space, a relationship with, with a forensic IT partner, with comm specialists like ourselves, um, and a call centre um, operator, so that it, these things can all be stood up at a moment's notice. That might be something that's facilitated by your insurance company, but even so, it's worth making sure you understand all those relationships because when these things happen, it's inevitably on Christmas Day or at 4 a.m. on a Sunday or some really inconvenient time when you don't want to be starting that that process then. Um, and I think the last thing I'd say is there are some companies that just need to worry about this a lot more than others. If you handle a lot of sensitive data like people's you know, health records, if your business is sort of a data-led business, like you're an e-commerce company and the only thing that, you know, stakeholders and customers expect from you is is protection of their data. If you're a B2B company that has a lot of competitors that have a very similar offering to you, then if you have a data breach, you can just be switched off by your customers and they can just move to a competitor. So I think the threat actors are aware of this too, and that's the sort of company they target. So if you feel a sort of profile that, you know, they would like to, a ransomware operator thinks is a good target, then you really want to make sure you button it up because if you haven't been the subject of a ransomware attack yet, you're just on the list <laughs> for, for this year, I'd say. That, I think that's right. And I, I couldn't agree more with all of those recommendations, especially sort of having that plan. I mean, imagine imagine you have an incident and you've got a pre-written communication that can be sent out. You know, you've got to fill in some 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 details, but you've already got the template ready to go. And you're not mm. scrambling to get everyone together in the heat of the moment because you've already got the plan. You've already got the document and then you can execute the plan. It's just such a better way to respond compared mm. to the alternative. Yeah, um, and like you think about when whenever we've worked together, you can call me and we can have a team ready to respond, already writing messaging within an hour because we've got a relationship set up. Whereas if you just had to call me and I didn't know who you were and then we had to start a relationship and do paperwork and all that stuff, it takes a really long time, even if you're doing it extremely expeditiously. So I would... I couldn't, I can't, I can't stress enough that the importance of having those relationships ready to roll. That, that's exactly right. And I think on that, you mentioned sort of insurance and, you know, I, I do a lot of work with um, cyber insurers. And one of the reasons they've had such great success is that they've set up these panels of experts who, you know, like yourselves, like myself, who, who have dealt with these types of issues for a number of years. And so, you know, the cyber insurers do have these panels that are pre-vetted, that have been approved, and that's great. A lot of companies don't have cyber insurance either, you know, for whatever reason, but, um, you know, maybe we'll see how that changes over the coming years. But notwithstanding, at, at this current point in time, a number of companies don't have that cyber insurance. So, we, so we're actually you know, working with a number of clients and, and, and providing that sort of service to corporates directly as well. So not even just through insurance, where we'll, we'll, we'll provide that sort of, you know, panel response to help companies who might not have the insurance either yet or have made an informed business decision that they don't want to take it out. And then the other thing I think to, to note is that, you know, companies can, you know, go to their cyber insurer if they've got the insurance, if they're, if there's a particular, uh, and I agree with your comment that you really need to work with experts. This is a specialist area. You don't go to a general commercial lawyer or, um, mm. you know, a property lawyer for this type of work. It is very specialist. You know, you can, if you've got an existing relationship with someone who's got the expertise, you know, you can speak to your insurer and ask for 
them to pre-approve the use of certain vendors. So if, if you, uh, that's, I think, a message for companies. If, if you are interested, you know, you can reach out to me and I'm happy to have that discussion with you about how that can work in practice. Reese. That was fantastic. Big, big thank you for all of your uh, insights and, and contributions and, and, and expertise. Uh, really terrific discussion from, you know, to, to the listeners, obviously, thank you for listening, but you've heard today from really one of, if not the leading uh, communications expert when it comes to cyber crises in Australia. So we trust that you found the, the information useful in today's episode and uh, please feel free to reach out to myself or, or Reese if you have any questions about anything discussed today or generally when it comes to cyber and and, and, and crisis management. You can find my details on the Hall & Wilcox website, hallandwilcox.com.au, and you can find Reese's details on his website, portonovelli.com.au. Uh, both of us are on LinkedIn. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and follow our podcast on whatever platform you like to listen to. Uh, and you can also subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thanks so much, everyone. Mm-hmm.